The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Family fiction, great illustration of this principle of how we live with this fiction about ourselves, this made-up imaginary concept of who we are as a person, and the problem that that creates in life. Right? It is not a good, healthy way to live life, and we'll see that as we go through the story, why in the end it's, it's devastating to not understand accurately who we really are, right? good and bad. Uh, it's a very long story, a very long chapter, 55 verses. I'm not going to actually read through it all. Um, because there's no coffee this morning, it, it would be really unfair to read that many verses all at one time because it would put us all to sleep. Uh, God's Word is precious and good, but we have to be strategic in how we use it. So this morning, I'm going to just tell you the story, and I will read key passages as we go through it. Uh, and as we unfold this family fiction. Um, first principle, as the chapter starts out, uh, Jacob is really preparing to go home. And he's been serving Laban, uh, not so willingly, but with great diligence, for 20 years now. Uh, if you remember, Jacob had to flee from Esau, who wanted to kill him. And his mom said, go away from here, or, or your brother's going to kill you. So he'd gone, and uh, he originally thought this would be like a one or two year deal. He'd find him a wife, he'd return when it was safe. Well, that extended out to a 20-year time period. And now it's really clear that God is moving him to return. In fact, God appears to him and specifically says to him, it's time to go home. Uh, and uh, God reaffirms, actually, the promises that he gave on his way to Bethel. And there's some connections with the beginning of his journey at Bethel. And if you remember at Bethel, uh, God appeared to Jacob and said, uh, it really restated the promise that he gave to Abraham and Isaac. And he adds to it and says, I will be with you. You're going on this trip far away from home, but don't worry because I am going with you. I'm going to watch out for you. And what God meant by that, when God says he will go with us, what it meant for J Jacob is that God would protect him, that God would provide for him, and that God would bring him back home safely. And uh, what we get in this chapter really is, is the proof that all that was true. And uh, it, it catalogs and it really lays out how God had protected him uh, and uh, how God had watched over him in spite of the fact that Laban had been quite a cheat, right? And in fact, uh, uh, as, as Jacob recounts the past 20 years, he summarizes it in two ways in the first few verses. The first thing he summarizes is this great transfer of wealth from Laban's household to Jacob's household. And he credits that completely to God, that God, as the God who was with him, uh, had seen how uh, Laban had treated Jacob poorly. And over 20 years, God had very carefully transferred all of Laban's family wealth from Laban's household to Jacob's, uh, which is part of the reason he needed to leave. Right? He left home because Esau wanted to kill him. Now it's becoming apparent that Laban and his sons may be think, having the same thoughts. Right? They're not happy with him uh, because he now possesses all their wealth. 
Uh, and, and Jacob credits that to God who transferred it. Secondly, as, uh, as he's feeling this sense to go home, uh, and he's heard this word from God to return home, he calls uh, Rachel and uh, Leah out to him, and he explains his situation. He explains his story. He explains what's gone on. And while he's going home, he really would like to go home not single. <laughs> he would really like his wives to go with him. But the big question is, where does their loyalty lie? Uh, are they still connected with their father? Are they going to feel this you know, heartstring, this loyalty to stay with their father? Or are they now loyal to Jacob? And if you remember part of their story, he hasn't had the best relationship with his wives. One of the side effects of having more than one, right? Uh, it doesn't always go so well, and it hadn't gone so well for him. And there was a lot of uncertainty about, you know, are they both going to go with me? Can I at least hope for one of them to go with me? Uh, hopefully the one I like, you know. Uh, how's this going to work out? So he calls them out of the field, he explains the situation, and uh, tells them what he's thinking and what God has done, how God's appeared to him. Uh, and notice in verse 14 how Rachel and Leah respond. They say, that's fine with us. We won't inherit any of our father's wealth anyway. Literally, it really says, we have nothing left in our father's house. There's nothing here for us. Uh, He has reduced our rights to those of foreign women, and after he sold us, he wasted the money you paid him. All the wealth that God has given you from our father legally belongs to us and our children. So go ahead and do what God has told you. So the second thing we see is that not only has the family treasure been transferred to Jacob, but also family loyalty among uh, Rachel and Leah. They're very much committed to Jacob. And uh, the significant thing here to see is that they really feel like they have been used and cheated by their father. Right? Uh, they, they, they are still carrying bitterness about this whole double marriage thing, right? They feel that they have been not treated as daughters, but have been turned into foreigners, okay? which, is, it, which is basically the same as becoming a slave. And they charge that their father just used them for his own financial gain, and then he took the money that he got from selling them. Okay, great, great way to picture your dad, right? He sold us, and then he wasted the money, right? So uh, that's their take on the situation. So it's cleared for Jacob to leave. He's got his family with him. His wives are loyal. He's got great wealth that God has transferred from Laban's house. And he sets out uh, for home. Uh, But he does it in secret. In fact, throughout this passage, it uses the word steal. And in fact, in this next section from verses 17 down through the end of the chapter, the word steal in Hebrew, to steal something, uh, is used repeatedly. And uh, in fact, I like the New Living Translation translates that, 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 lay, that Jacob stole away. Okay? He stole away, which is a good English idiom meaning to, to sneak away, right? To sneak away by stealth. And that's exactly what he does. He puts his wives on ca- and children on camels and uh, sends them off. And then he rounds up his vast herds of sheep and goats and follows behind. And he does it strategically when Laban happens to be away shearing sheep. And if you remember, Laban, to separate their flocks to make sure uh, he protects his well, separated his flocks by a three-day journey. So now Laban's gone a three-day's journey away to shear his sheep. And at this time, Jacob um, 
decides this is the time to leave. And notice what it says. It says in verse 19, at that time, they, at the time they left, Laban was some distance away, three days in fact, shearing his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household idols and took them with her. Okay, And Jacob stole Laban's heart. Literally in Hebrew, it says Jacob stole Laban's heart, which is a Hebrew idiom meaning to trick somebody or outwit somebody. Right? Uh, great picture of what's going on here. Okay, And interesting, uh, what is this whole deal with Rachel stealing her dad's household idols? Well, we'll get to that in a bit. Um, but it's a strategic time, and Jacob sneaks away with all the wealth. Rachel sneaks away with the household gods, and Laban is clueless for three days. Uh, finally, word gets to him, and he hotly pursues uh, Jacob. He assembles all the family he can find, and he chases them off out through the desert, and he finally catches up with them in the hills. And it says that, uh, that Laban set his camp on one hillside while Jacob's camp was on another. And in the Old Testament, when any time one group of people camps on one hillside and somebody camps on the other hillside, what's that a picture of? War. Okay, but they're not getting together to sing Kumbaya. Okay? This is not happy roast marshmallows time. This is what happened when armies set up sides to go to war. Right? And that's really what's being pictured here. Uh, it's very clear that Laban's intentions are not to give a farewell party. <clears throat> okay? He is angry. And he feels cheated and robbed and betrayed. And he feels that he has just lost all of his wealth. <clears throat> and it's pretty clear that his goal and intention is to take it back. Right? He assembled all the people he could find, all of his family, all of his sons, for a reason. Because it was his will and purpose to go and take back all that he felt was his. So they draw up sides. The camps are set for battle. And uh, Laban comes to Jacob, and he confronts him. And this is what he says in verse 26. What do you mean by stealing away like this? Laban demanded. How dare you drag my daughters away like prisoners of war? Why did you slip away secretly? Why did you steal away? And why didn't you say you wanted to leave? I would have gladly given you a farewell feast with singing and music accompanied by tambourines and harps. Why didn't you let me kiss my daughters and, and grandchildren and tell them goodbye? You have acted very foolishly. I could destroy you, but the God of your father appeared to me last night and warned me, leave Jacob alone. I can understand your feeling that you must go and your intense longing for your father's home, but why have you stolen my gods? Can I love this. Uh, Laban drills Jacob with a whole bunch of questions. And in these questions, he really re reveals... His view of himself, okay? His what I would call father fiction or family fiction, okay? And I want you to just highlight these briefly, okay? And get a picture of how Laban sees himself. Question number one, he says, you know, why did you steal away like this, okay? In that question, uh, Laban is accusing Jacob of violating this deep trust, right? And I think Laban pictures himself as this man, this very trustworthy man that anybody could go to for advice and counsel, right? 
How could you break this trust with me? I am the most trusting guy in the world. You could come talk. You're like my son. I'm so wounded that you broke this trust. You know, we've had such a deep and meaningful relationship. Really? Well, in, in Laban's eyes, yes. Okay, he pictures this this great violation of trust that that. Jacob would have the nerve to leave without consulting with his dear friend and father-in-law, right? Okay, I think this guy's like smoking or smelling, sniffing too much glue or something. I don't know. Second thing, he says, you know, how, how could you drag my daughters away as prisoners of war? Okay, second fiction he has about himself is that he pictures himself as a dearly loved father, okay? The only way he could imagine that his daughters would go like this is if they were being kidnapped, right? Surely his daughters were deeply devoted to him and had deep fondness and affection for their dear, dear father, right? And I think he pictures himself as this man who his daughters just adored and looked up to and would never do something like this of their own accord. Surely they must be prisoners of war to be drug away against their will like this, right? This poor, um, betrayed, wounded, trusting father. Third question. He says, how could you slip away secretly? How could you steal away? Why didn't you just tell me you wanted to leave and I would have thrown you a great party? Third great fiction. He sees himself as a very kind and generous man who is benevolent to the extreme, right? If you would have just told me, just think of the great celebration we could have had. Uh, I would have thrown a great feast. I would, have invited the whole, I would have invited the whole country, right? And we would have honored you. We would have celebrated with great joy because I am just oozing with generosity, right? Have you read it? If you've been with us through this story, if anything, you know, Laban is, it is not generous, right? But you see, he's, I, mean, I think he believes it. I think as he says these things, he believes it. Just think of what you have robbed me the opportunity of showing kindness and generosity to you. Right? This guy who sold his two daughters for 14 years worth of labor. Okay, not exactly Mr. Generosity. Um, next, next statement. Um, God warned me not to harm you. Right? And because I am such a man of patience and, 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 and compassion and mercy, I have been very merciful to you. And while I could destroy you, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to treat you with mercy because I am just oozing not only with generosity, but I am oozing with uh, mercy and kindness. Right? Do you get the picture? Now here's a guy who's idea of himself, his family fiction, if you will, is a man who's kind, loving, uh, adored by his family, generous and gracious, right? Uh, well, his, finally, his final accusation, uh, he says, you know, why have you stolen my gods, right? Why have you stolen my gods? Um, and this is a very colorful and interesting part of the story. What is with these stolen gods, right? Um, it's now Jacob's turn to defend himself, and he says, well, I rushed away because I was afraid. You may think you're this kind and loving person, but the reality is I was afraid of you, 
right? But as for the stolen gods, search. Search high and low. And if you can find them, we'll put to death whoever stole them. Okay, this is how confident Jacob is that he is free of all guilt in this and that none of his family would do such a horrible thing. Um, so uh, Laban sets out and he begins to tear the camp apart. Right? And uh, the, the author puts this uh, very dramatically. It says Laban first went into Jacob's tent to search there. Then he went into Leah's tent and then the tents of the two servant wives, but he found nothing. Finally, he went into Rachel's tent, but Rachel had taken the household idols and hid them in her camel saddle. And now she was sitting on them. When Laban had thoroughly searched her tent without finding them, she said to her father, Please, sir, forgive me if I don't get up for you. I'm having my monthly period. So Laban continued his search but he could not find the household idols. Oh, this is a lovely story, <laughs> okay? And, uh, you know, what is, this, what is this about? You know, what is this about? Uh, well, and why, and why is this here? Uh, why did Rachel steal these, these gods? Um, why is Laban so bent on finding them? And why does this story get told with such great detail? What does it mean? Well, I think it, I think it means two things. Okay? Two important truths that come out of this story. First of all, um, it shows the truth about Rachel's real relationship with her father. Okay? Uh, does she love and adore her father? Well, I don't think so. Uh, why did she steal them? Uh, oftentimes we may read through this and think that she stole them because she thought they would have some benefit for her. Uh, that she knew she was leaving home, going far away. Maybe she didn't quite trust uh, the God of Jacob. And so maybe she trusted a bit more in her father's gods. And so she stole these gods to take with her to bring good luck, uh, to help them on their journey. That, that's one possibility, but I don't think that's why she did it. Right? In fact, there's really nothing in the text that indicates that she used them. And in fact, the way she hides them is, is important. Okay? If you really think these are gods, if you really think they are to be respected and worshipped, you don't sit on them. Okay? Okay? It's just not done right? in, in any culture, but especially in Eastern cultures. Right? whole body position, you know, the whole feet, head, things. Sitting on your gods is bad. Okay, that would be bad luck, right? The fact that she does this, especially when she's having her period, okay, double, not, not good, okay? I don't, think, I don't think that's why she took them. I think she took them because she's still just a bit bitter over the whole marriage thing with her father, right? She stole them to get revenge on her dad, right? And I think that's what this is about. It's, it's illustrating and it's showing that, uh, that there was no love lost between Rachel and her father. Whatever fiction Laban had about himself was clearly not true. Uh, it's significant that when he comes into her tent, she comes up with this, this excuse why she can't rise. Right? In that culture, you would rise to honor, kind of like in Thailand, you know, you why, to show respect to an elder. The fact that she stayed sitting and didn't respect him is a huge diss. Right? 
It's a huge disrespect to her father. Comes up with an excuse, true or not, we don't know. Uh, it was her story. She stuck with it. Uh, she, I believe, stole uh, the gods to get even with her father. Remember in verses 14 and 15, Leah and Rachel said, you know, our dad sold us as slaves. Uh, he has cut us out of the family. He has squandered our inheritance. And there is, as they said, there is nothing left in his house for us. And so I think she took them as a way of, of getting back, getting even with her father. While she may not have valued them as religious objects, as gods, they did have value. They were probably made of precious metal, maybe gold. They did have worth and value. She was going to get what she felt was due her uh, from her father. Um, so first thing, it shows this more accurate picture of reality. Second thing, uh, it shows, I think this story illustrates greatly the difference between Laban's God and Jacob's God, right? Laban's God is pocket God, right? Pocket God is super convenient, okay? Pocket God is portable, handy, travels with you, can be easily stuck in your backpack, suitcase, or camel saddle, right? Right? You just pop it in there and you're good to go. It won't bother you. It won't tell you what to do or make extreme demands on your life. It stays quietly hidden away until you need them. Right? Everybody wants a God like this. Right? Everybody wants a God that we can stuff away in our pocket. And when it's convenient for us, when we need it, we can whip out pocket God and we can get help just long enough that we're out of our fix and then we can stuff him back in our pocket and go on our merry way without this God who demands things of us, who commands things of us, who has his own will and his own thoughts and his own plan for our life, right? Who wants a God like that? Well, that's very much the kind of God that Laban and people in that day worshipped. Right? People in our day don't do that, though, do they? We don't, we don't try to stuff God into our pocket and just use him when it's convenient. We would never think of doing that, would we? And yet, how often do people create a God in their own mind, in their own thinking, that is exactly that? That is a God we can control, a God we, we can tame, a God we can stuff away until it's convenient for us when we need him. Well, that's the kind of God that uh, Laban valued. And it's interesting that in this story, when it comes down to it, he's pursuing for two things. First thing, he wants all of his wealth back, right? Second thing, he wants his God back. When it's clear that he can't get his wealth, what is he still after? Not his daughters, not his grandkids. What he must go home with is pocket God, right? What a statement about this guy's values, right? What matters most to him are these gods he is trusting in, but who are so small and impotent, uh, he can't find them. Okay? It's a bummer when you lose your pocket god. Okay? Uh, and it doesn't say much for your god who gets lost. You know? Uh, you know, I would love to pray today, but I lost my god. I don't know what I'm going to do. I've lost my god and I can't find him. And he can't find me. Right? Uh, not a very powerful God. Not a very effective God. 
Okay, a weak and pathetic God who gets stuffed into a camel bag and uh, is being sit, sat on, seated on, seated on, <laughs> is in a bad position. Okay, right. Uh, on by contrast, two times in this passage, uh, Jacob refers to his God as the fearsome God. I love that, the fearsome God, the God who was with him. Right. Uh, this story illustrates that. That what Laban was trusting in was empty and powerless. Right? Um, now, was it right for Rachel to steal her father's God? Well, you know, no. <laughs> uh, but we'll get to that later. Uh, when Laban cannot find his pocket God... It's now Jacob's turn to become angry and turn the tables. Right? And in verse 36, he says, what, What's my crime? What have I done, to, uh, done wrong to make you chase after me as though I were a criminal? You have rummaged through everything I own. Now show me what you found that belonged to you. Set it out here in front of us before our relatives for all to see. Let them judge between us. And that really is the question here. Whose version of truth and reality is right? Jacob's or Laban's? Laban's made all these accusations that he's being abused, that Jacob has taken advantage of him, that he's stolen his children and grandchildren and all of his possessions and his gods, and that Jacob is really this evil cheat of a person. But Jacob says... No, that's actually not true. The reality is, for 20 years I have been with you, caring for your flocks, and all that time your sheep and goats never miscarried, and all those years I never used a single ram of yours for food. If any were attacked and killed by wild animals, I never showed you the carcass and asked you to reduce the count of your flock. No, I took the loss myself. You made me pay for every stolen animal, whether it was taken in daylight or in dark of night. I worked for you through the scorching heat of the day and through the cold, sleepless nights. Yes, for 20 years I have slaved in your house. I worked 14 years for your two daughters and then six more years for your flock. And you changed my wages ten times. In fact, if the God of my father had not been on my side, the God of Abraham, the fearsome God of Isaac, you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen your abuse and my hard work. That is why he appeared to you last night, and he judged you. He judged you. Um, Jacob's version of reality is that uh, Jacob had done the right and honest thing, that in the end it was Laban who has been the cheat, who has tricked, who has changed wages, who has lied, who has cheated and deceived, who is greedy and selfish. And he says, here's the proof of it all. The God, my God, my fearsome God, who sees everything, knows the truth. He knows the reality of what you have done, and He knows the reality of what, I've, what I have done. And in fact, the dream, the vision you had of God, vindicates me. God has judged between us. When He told you and warned you to leave me alone, it is proof that God judged in my favor. Right? God has vindicated me. Uh, Jacob stands firmly that God is a judge, a faithful judge who sees everything. And he says to his family, he says, let our family judge between us. 
But that's not really necessary because in the end, God has already judged. And God has found me to be right and you to be wrong. The fearsome God who sees acts. He is not a pocket God. You cannot stuff him away. He has a mind of his own and he judges honestly and fairly. Um, He is a God who sees those who are abused and harmed. And God in his justice will always work to set things right. Uh, one, of, one of my fears in the, uh, where the church is going in the world today is that people really want to reduce God to pocket God. Right? They want to take the God of the Bible, the God of truth, and they want to make him all about a loving, kind, and happy God who gives us whatever we want, but who is not a God of judgment and justice. Right? Uh, we want God to be the God who's all about love and he's all happy, but would never get in our face about things we are doing wrong. God is not that way. And in fact, a God who does not judge is a God who cannot love. If God looks down and he sees two people, he sees one person being abused by another person, and he says, well, I don't don't pick sides, you know. I just love everybody. You know, it kind of sucks for you, but I'm just going to love you both, you know, even though you're getting abused, because I'm a loving, happy God, right? Love wins. Okay, that's not love. Right? That's not love. Love looks at somebody who's being harmed and looks at somebody who's harming and realizes that both need help. And love steps in and does something for both. Right? To prevent the, the abuser from, from going too far to protect the one who's being abused. That's love. Right? God is a God of justice. He is a fearsome God. Yes, He is a God of love. But He is a God who judges. He is not a God we can stuff away in our pocket and pull out when it's convenient for us. He is a God who is sovereign and who is mighty and who is powerful and sees everything. Always. He judges and evaluates our life. Well, the story ends this way. Uh... Laban is kind of cornered. Uh, he really has no answer. And, and this is what he says. He says, These women are my daughters. These children are my grandchildren. And these flocks are my flocks. In fact, everything you see is mine. But what can I do now about my daughters and their children? So let's make a covenant, you and I, and it will be a witness to our commitment. Um, uh, this is tragic. I mean, to get the picture of this, here's a guy who's, who is losing everything, right? He's lost his daughters. He's about to lose his grandchildren. He's losing the majority of his wealth. And he's losing pocket God, right? And he says, what can I do about it now, right? The reality is there's nothing he can do about it. It's already too late. He has lost them all. Um, God has judged, and uh, Laban has lost. And it really illustrates the, the horrible tragedy of living a lie. Right? All of his life, Laban pictured himself as being one kind of person, clueless as to what he really was. Right? I think 
all through his life, Laban had really believed he was this loving, caring father, this generous man who built deep and trusting relationships, clueless to who he really was as a cheat and a liar and a scoundrel, as a guy who would sell off his own daughters. Uh, a little bit later, just to kind of illustrate how clueless he is, when they set up this covenant, this kind of peace agreement to divide and separate peacefully, uh, Jake, uh, Laban himself says that God will be a witness. Uh, he said, uh, this pile of stones, this monument is a witness between us, a witness of our, of our vows. Uh, may the Lord keep watch between us to make sure that we keep his covenant when we are out of each other's sight. If you mistreat my daughters, or if you marry other wives, God will see to it if no one else does. Okay, I love this. Okay, I was going, you know, you better not marry any more wives, because that's wrong, okay? What are, are you serious? You're the guy that hooked him up with two wives in the first place, right? What do you mean? See? He's clueless. He is clueless to his part in all this, right? And the sad thing is it's too late. Um, you know, the reality is that this is a, a common trait of human beings, right? Maybe Laban is somewhat of an extreme example of it, but the reality is that every single one of us as sinful, fallen human beings create a fiction about ourselves, right? Uh, we have an idea of what we want to be. Uh, we have an idea or picture of what you know, what we hope to be. And oftentimes we confuse that wish with what we really are, right? Uh, we we want to be a track star when really we, we ought to be playing cricket or something, I don't know. Cro- or crocheting would be even better actually, right? Um, we don't get the reality of who we are, right? Um we think we are a loving and caring parent who is loved and adored by our children. Right? You know, I've seen so many parents come to the point where their children graduate and leave home only to find out what their children really thought about them. And it's too late. Uh, we think we are the perfect husband or wife who is all that their mate could want and that we have the devotion and complete affection of our spouse, right? I've been there and done that one. Uh, thankfully, God showed me the, the truth that I was not all that great as a husband. Uh, maybe we see ourselves as an amazing director or leader or school teacher or student or athlete or pastor and that you know, we have redefined our job and that on our team, at our work, at our place, could never function without us because we are God's answer to whatever, right? Uh, really? Do we really believe that? Uh, we see ourselves as a man or woman of God who has deep faith and a genuine commitment to Christ and a almost sinless life, right? Now, you're probably thinking, well, I know that's not true of me. I know I have lots of faults. Yeah, we do. We know we have lots of faults. And the reality is we own a lot of our mistakes, especially the outward obvious ones that we can't escape from. Right? Um, but also it is true that there is a lot about ourselves we are blind to. Okay? There is a lot about our own lives that we are absolutely blinded to. 
And if you don't believe it, you just need to start reading the Bible and hold the mirror up and ask God to reveal to you who you really are. But be careful if you pray that prayer because he will show you. And you won't like it. You won't like it. The reality is we are far more selfish. We are far more proud and stubborn. We are far more angry. We are far more manipulating than we would ever like to admit. Uh, the sh- depth of our pride, the shallowness of our faith, uh, that we are dominated by doubt and fear, are things that lurk very deep in us, and we are mostly oblivious to. Uh, if you don't believe it, and I could, there are several counselors here this morning. It would be fun to talk to all my counselors' friends this morning and say, have you ever noticed when people come in for counseling that they have no clue about the reality of their life. All the counselors will say, Amen. Okay? When I was counseling, I saw this over and over again. A couple comes in, I'd interviewed the husband. Man, I have this great relationship. Me and my wife, we're, we're just the happiest couple ever. I'd interview the wife. She's ready to divorce him. Right? She hates the guy. He has no clue. No clue. Um, God has given us a special gift. That, if you don't believe this, he, I really think God has given us a special gift to help us with this. And this is the gift. Uh, start writing down the things that just really bug you in other people. Okay, When people do something, you know, the, the buttons you have that, that, that get pushed, that just set you off, right? And you just go, Ooh. okay, start writing down the specific things that do that to you. Okay? All right? And, you know, my wife does this. My husband does this. My kids do this. Okay? When you get a good long list, take and scratch out the name at the top and put your name there. Okay, Because chances are, about 90% of the times, the things that really bother us in other people are very much the things that we don't see in ourselves. Okay, uh, Painful reality, but I think oftentimes it is very true. And the sad reality of it all is that if we do not open our eyes now, right? if we don't humbly put ourselves before God and say, God, please examine me. Please show me what I don't see in myself. We will end up being just like Laban, and we're going to come to a point where we are losing the things closest and dearest to us. And like him, we're going to have to say, what can I do now? It's too late. It will be too late. And I've seen it happen over and over again. Uh, wives who divorce their husbands who were clueless, Hus- uh, children who deeply resent their parents, and they were clueless. And when the reality comes out, it is often too late. The damage is done, and we've lost them. Um, God, by His grace and His Spirit, wants to show us, wants to shine a light in our life and illumine in us those areas. He is a judge who sees all things. He knows the depth of our being. Uh, We need to humbly go before Him and understand that He's a loving God who wants to show us these things, not to condemn us, but out of love. You know, we know that God was with Jacob. God was loving to Jacob. God was kind to Jacob. But what God does here is also kind and loving to Laban as well. You know, God took everything He owned away from him. And it was by his love and grace. Okay? Don't you want God to be loving and graceful to you like that? Well, the good news is God wants to get through to Laban. 
And he'll strip away everything he has to get through to him to help him see who he really is. That's grace. Okay, that is God's grace. Okay, God's love does not blindly ignore the truth. Right? Well, they end with a civil divorce. They set up these monuments. And when all is said and done, all, the, all that's left is that they divide peacefully. Uh, they divide, you get this half of the world, I get that half of the world. This is the fence. Don't ever cross my line. Right? Don't ever, you stay on your side of the fence, I stay on my side of the fence. And may God be a witness. Okay? May God judge. And interestingly, it's, it's, um, it's Laban who calls God to judge. Again, a, a reminder of how clueless he is about all this. That God is judging, and he's judging him. Uh, he misses that point. Well, what does this mean for us personally? Well, let me just boil it down to three simple principles to take home. Uh, first of all, uh, we do have our own fiction, and we we need to admit it. You know, we need to, you know, we need to wake up in the morning and 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 say, you know, there are things about myself I don't know. There are dark things in me that I am not aware of. Uh, and we need to seek God to expose those things. Psalms 139, 23, and 24 puts it this way. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Right? Uh, we need to trust God that in His goodness He will mercifully help us see things in us that need changing. Secondly, uh, we need to be very careful that we have not res- reduced God to some kind of pocket God. So easy to do. Right? Um, God is a fearsome God. Uh, he is not a God to be messed with. He is not a God to take for granted. Okay? He is a loving God. But in His love... He is fearsome. Right? Um, he is not God on demand like cable TV. Uh, and here, here's the test. Um, if, if, if you evaluate your prayer life, when do you turn to God for help? Okay? If, if the only time you really take prayer seriously is when you've got a very critical decision to make, You've got some kind of life crisis, you know, with your health or with your finances or in your life, right? Or you're just seriously depressed. And those are the only times you turn to God. You have a pocket God, okay? If, on the other hand, you seek God continually and you want to know Him in truth and in fullness, and it is your daily passion to know the God who is the creator of the universe, okay, then you love and worship the fearsome God. Third thing to take home. Uh, and, and this is the good news. Uh, this story really is about Jacob and his trip from leaving home, getting his wives and family, being incredibly blessed by God and returning home. And the Hebrew is very symmetrical. His journey starts with God promising to be with him, to provide and protect. He's now returning home and God really restates that promise and four different times God states in various ways I am with you I have been with you I will be with you we serve a God who is with us and for those of us who trust him uh, who turn to him in faith 
God is with us. And what that means is even though we have lots of junk in our life that, God, that we don't see, and even though God sees it all, if we simply trust Him, God is with us, right? And God does not judge us like we deserve. Isn't that amazing? God knows the hidden things about you, all of them. And the amazing thing is if we just trust Him, if we just say, God, I need you, He loves you, and He promises to be with you in spite of what you are. What about Rachel? Stealing her dad's pocket gods. I mean, what a low blow, right? Is she deserving of mercy and grace? Well, no, right? But I love what happens in this story. Uh, Jacob unwittingly sentences her to death, right? The, the gods turn up in her possession. Jacob's just said he's going to kill who's ever got it. He just sentenced his favorite wife to death, right? But God is with her, and he protects her, right? I mean, she comes up with a pretty good story, but God protects her. God watches over her. Does she deserve it? No, right? Does Jacob deserve it? Absolutely not. Is Jacob perfect? No. But God has made a promise that he will be with them, and he will protect them regardless. Um, The New Testament puts it this way. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 says this. Sorry, Galatians, yes, chapter 3. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say it is through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of of the law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. Amazing. He took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. Everything, what you know and what you don't know, that that is selfish and prideful and wicked about us, Jesus took that curse upon himself. It is written in the scriptures, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The Gentiles, with the same, um, through Jesus Christ, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham. Isn't that amazing? Okay, this promise that he told Jacob, I will be with you, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to the nations. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles, that's all of us who aren't Jews, with the same blessing he promised to Abraham, so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Amazing. Um, Romans 8 puts it this way, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Okay, God is judged, but who will judge you? Well, because God has poured out the judgment and wrath of his vengeance on Christ, who will accuse you? Uh, no one. 
For God himself has given us the right standing with himself. Who will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Okay, Jesus is the one who will sit on the great white throne. And someday every human being will stand before the fearsome God at the judgment seat of Christ. And Jesus will sit there and judge the world. And you and I, one by one, will stand before him. Who will condemn us? No one. Because Jesus will step down and say, uh, I already paid the price. I already covered it for you. So there is no condemnation. There is no judgment. You stand in my righteousness. Okay? Uh, good and bad, ugly, horrible, what we see, what we don't. It all comes under God's grace. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or are hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ Jesus who loved us. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.